Welcome to Epicenter, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and people driving decentralization in the global blockchain revolution. I'm Sebastian Cuccio, and I'm here with Frederike Ernst. Today, we're speaking with Alex Blania, who is the co-founder and CEO of WorldCoin. But before we talk to Alex, I'd like to first tell you about our sponsors this week. Are your crypto assets sitting highly in your, idly in your wallet? Well, you can start earning rewards and contribute to network security by staking with Chorus One. There is staking providers securing $5 billion in assets on over 25 decentralized networks, including Solana, Cosmos, and Ethereum. Are you interested in running your own branded nodes? Well, they have a managed white label node as a service offering that leverages Chorus One's highly available and proven infrastructure, enabling you to participate directly in decentralized networks. If you've been a loyal Solana delegator with Chorus One, make sure to check your wallets because they've done their first ever major NFT drop to any validator on Chorus One. And they'll be airdropping over 3,600 exclusive NFTs to its Solana delegators, according to their delegation profile in December of 2021. But if you missed out on this airdrop, don't worry, because you can still participate in the upcoming airdrops on Cosmos chains by simply delegating to Chorus One notes. So head over to Chorus.One to start your staking journey. We're also brought to you by Paraswap. Paraswap is a DEX aggregator on Ethereum. It means that through Paraswap, you can easily access liquidity on various different decentralized exchanges, the protocol automatically finds the cheapest liquidity for you so you can trade knowing that you're getting the best price. Paraswap also has very is very gas-friendly, also helping you keep transactions low. And Paraswap recently added support for Avalanche, Polygon, BSC, and Phantom. You can also use Paraswap directly in your Ledger Live app. In addition to that, they also are becoming DAO. So if you have PSP tokens, that's something you can participate in as a token holder. The Paraswap DAO just voted... For the gas refund program, uh, this allows Paraswap stakers to get 100% gas refund on their trades on the top up of their auto compounding yield. So join Paraswap's Discord channel to learn more about the DAO. Go to paraswap.io slash Discord. Alex, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Tell us a bit about your background and how you became involved in crypto and what led you to become the CEO of WorldCoin. Right. So, um, yeah, right before WorldCoin, I was in physics, actually. So I was... Um, uh, I was I was at Caltech in Los Angeles, and I was working on basically how to use neural networks to make kind of quantum computations that are really really hard to do uh, with numerical methods. How to make them much much cheaper and faster. Um, and I did this for quite a while. I think like one and a half two years. So first in Germany at Max Planck, um, and then at Caltech in Los Angeles. And before that, well, I was always building things. I was always a hacker, right? So uh, I had my my first semi company when I was relatively young doing vertical farming and many other things. So I was always, I was always building. It was always clear to me that uh, I, I want to kind of start a company um, or, or a project. And yeah, then at Caltech, basically I met Sam and Max back then and uh, heard about Rollcoin and was really excited about it and got involved. Cool. So you met Sam Altman while you were at Caltech? That's correct. Right. So cool. I, the original story actually was something like, Sam was already working it together with Max, the the, the third co-founder. And I don't know, not, not too long, like three, four months. The idea was super early. It was just like the the concept was there. And I remember actually I interviewed as a as an engineer back then at Rock and that, that's actually how everything got started. And uh then I became friends with with both Sam and Max and it, it was super early and I just became co-founder. And then I brought my all the great people I met in university, uh, both in Germany at, at Caltech, um, basically with me, and that, that turned out to be the founding team. Uh, so we have like a lot of scientists and, and, and kind of 
physicists, actually, like many physicists in the company because of that reason. Cool. And what are your respective roles in the project now? Well, I'm the I'm the CEO. I'm I'm running the day to day business. Right, the company's now around a hundred people. It's it it's a lot of people because it's just kind of we, we build hardware like on the ground operations, like many things that just require a lot of human capital. And well, Sam is is the co-founder chairman. Uh, we we talk a lot, and he's involved in every big decision. But I run the day to day basically. And uh, Max. Max is now actually starting a new project right now. Uh, he's he's like a really great zero to one guy. Cool. So, um, in a nutshell, before we deep dive into the um, Wellcoin itself, what's the idea behind Wellcoin? So we started two years ago, right? So right when I uh, when I came from Caltech, we started with this very simple idea of onboarding the world into Web three. And distribute the value it creates fairly with everyone, uh, because that that itself would be a very powerful thing to achieve. You can you can try and, and achieve many new things with that, like everything from UBI to uh, digital de democracy, all of those things. So that was very very exciting to us. Um, back then, Web three was not a common word used. Back then, it was just crypto, and uh, very few people participating. And we just really thought hard about how can we accelerate this whole transition. Like how can we get many many more people into there, uh, because getting to a large network and just kind of getting much more attention towards it should should be net positive for everyone. And so with that idea, we we thought about just launching a token by by giving ownership in that token to everyone, just just simply for the reason of being a human. Just like when you no matter where you are, who you are, you should you should have access to that and, and claim ownership in that in that token. Um, and that then should be hopefully the widest and fair distributed token there is currently, right? And that was a very simple, basic idea. And then we stumbled across a, uh, a very big problem that I think you, you talk about here quite a bit. I, I heard it from uh, from Gitcoin recently is, is civil resistance, right? Like how can you, how can you make sure uh, that, that every participant in, in such a, in such a network and such a system is only receiving one, uh, one, one share of it. And it's not just creating multiple pseudonymous identities and basically the whole mechanism breaks down um and that's why we uh that's why we're building a hardware device uh called the orb so the the, the orb is just basically the the only solution we found um, to solve that problem in a privacy preserving and scalable way how every user can prove to the protocol not our not, not just ours but everyone else's uh that they are in fact unique real alive and uh yeah so Fundamentally, it's two things. It's a, it's a platform. It's open, decentralized, proof of personhood that any other project will be able to use for whatever they want to use it for. And then an application of that platform, which will be the widest and fairly distributed token there is. That, that is the idea. And um, yeah, right now we, we've answered all the big conceptual and technical questions we had a year ago. Uh, we've onboarded, I think, 450,000 people. So we're ready to scale. It's a really exciting time in the company. So before you came up, this sort of final idea of the orb and we'll get into how the orb works. What had you imagined other systems that would allow you to overcome the civil resistance problem, you know, or had you looked at other civil resistant uh, protocols and other initiatives that people are working on to try to solve this problem? And, you know, how, how did those come up short if, you know? Yeah, a lot. Uh, so many, many months actually. So the first, 
I don't know, probably like the first four or five months, we just we just thought about this problem and kind of read in all of those different things that are that are out there right now. There's like many things, right? It starts with classical KYC that you could use, and that's obviously not great for um, a bunch of obvious reasons. Then what many people are doing is, is web of trust or network topology things where you just try to analyze the network of users and you try to understand, okay, who, who of those people are fraudulent users and all those kinds of things. And basically the... The summary of that back then was that the only truly scalable thing that there is currently is um, is biometrics. It's just a fundamental solution to that. It's like you you take a feature that is unique to a person and you use that to make sure that that person signs up only once, right? And um, that that's the case, for example, in India in the Adhar project. If you want to be part of the social buffer system in India, you do that also with your with your biometrics. Uh, that's the only solution they found to that problem and. The cool thing in crypto is you can use your knowledge proofs to make it privacy preserving. So that was that was back then this big click moment for us where we looked in all of those other things um, and none of that really seemed to scale or we saw many, many reasons how at scale. So if it goes above like 100 million, 200 million, 500 million users, um, it would break down. And that was not the case for biometrics. And then we we realized, okay, if you use your knowledge proofs in the right way here, you can actually make it privacy preserving, you can make it scalable and, and practical on a, on a global application. But we really think about it as, like we're not, it was a really tough insight to be to be clear. It was nothing we, we have been excited back then, like, okay, we have to build our own hardware device, so cool. It was a really um, brutal uh, kind of insight for us. It, it's, it's obviously a very hard endeavor. And we really see it as we try to innovate on all the other things that there are in parallel, right? And we try to bootstrap a large enough network with the ORP as fast as we can. And then maybe at some point uh, we, we can switch to Web of Trust or other applications or the ORP continues to stay in, in other applications. We will see. But basically we think about this problem a lot and uh, it's it's the cleanest and, and straightforward solution we found. So I, I kind of want to talk about um, the problem set and the process of collecting biometric data in a bit. But maybe let's talk about the OOP first. So the OOP is this very futuristic looking ball, um, ball-like thing. It's, it's shiny, it's made from metal, and it photographs your iris, right? Yeah. And what what does it then do with um, the, the iris scan? There are actually there are multiple things to that, right? So first of all, what is the problem you're trying to solve? The problem is, is called proof of, of personhood or, or proof of unique humanness, right? So how can anyone, no matter where you are, where you come from, you can prove to a protocol that you are, in fact, unique, you are a real human, and you're alive. So you're not, you're not a bot, you're not a display that tries to like, a- attack the system in any different way. Like All kinds of security concerns, of course. Th- that is proof of personhood, that is proof of unique uh, humanness. And so what the ORB does is it um, first kind of has all kinds of security me- mechanisms in there to check that you are in fact a real person versus a display and all kinds of things, right? Because basically you want to show up in front of that orb and a few seconds later you get your proof of person that should not work with a display or all kinds of contact lenses, all those kinds of things. So first the orb does a liveness check to make sure that you're real. Uh, then it collects a, a picture of your eye, uh, calculates a unique identifier out of your, your your eye so the muscle of the eye that's actually kind of we will we'll talk more about biometric um data sources in a second but basically it's the only thing that actually works fingerprints face does all of that stuff doesn't work and 
then basically proves to uh, to an L2. So those iris hashes, first of all, from, from the iris embedding, there's an iris hash created, so you cannot go back from that actual hash to the picture of the eye. That, that's the first important piece. And then the iris hash is stored on an L2 in the open, so everyone one can see what is going on there. And the user can then prove a foreseen knowledge proof in their app um, that they are included in a certain set of people. So basically, basically the thing that you achieve here is the orb proves, or with the help of the orb, you prove that you are unique in a certain set of people without revealing who you are and what your actual public and private key is. So you, you stay fully pseudonymous and neither us or anyone else can change that. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. So basically, if, um, if I scan my iris again, um, it'll come up with um, the same hash. Um, and you'll know that I'm already in the system and it will deny um, a new proof of personhood, right? Correct. So where do you store, um, where, where's your database of iris hashes? There's a roadmap we will publish around that soon. But um, the final state of the system is that it's stored on another L2, right? So on, on another blockchain, uh, or those, those iris hashes are stored. And so, so it's in the open, there is no central database or something like that. Uh, and everyone basically can prove that that uh, that verification happened. I, I think there's been a, a number of criticisms around around this uh, around the system, and I think the the one that I, that most people have that I've read and like most people have cited is this idea that once you've created a hash of your biometric data, uh, there's no going back. And that that hash of your biometric data can be used for any number of any number of applications. You know whether it's um, you know targeted ads or it could be something even more nefarious. How like how did you guys come to this to the conclusion that this was in fact a good idea, given the the amount of and you know it's possible that this. Uh, skepticism exists in a certain circle of the population. I think that most people in the world, you know, don't think about this sort of thing the same way that most people don't use Signal or, you know, like don't use a ledger device or uh, don't go to great lengths to, you know, stop tracking or like things like that. But from your position of understanding these things, he's like, you're a smart guy. How did you s square uh, let's say, you know, the the application, which is, you know, fairly powerful of like being able to prove someone's personhood with this is actually a good idea and no harm will come of this. Right. So so first of all, um, we are actually quite like our, our team is very extreme on the privacy side. We have like many, many people that have the background in the company. So we, we think about that a lot and we don't take that lightly. Right. So but it is very important to understand that what those zero knowledge proofs here achieve really is that your your biometrics do not end up being your your actual identity, but rather your your kind of password. Right? So those two things are fully separate. I as a user, I show up in front of an orb, um, I verify my proof of personhood, I basically receive two set of keys, one one set of public and private keys for my actual wallet, my Ethereum wallet, and I can do whatever I want with that. And then the second thing is my basically identity, um, public and private key. And I can use that to then issue with zero knowledge proofs to different applications that I'm unique to that application, right? So basically whenever, uh, I don't know, let's go to the worst case. 
I don't know, like we we actually would try to to track people or something like that uh, or or anyone else really. The only thing we could we could we could prove or anyone else can prove is that you're unique to that application. You end up in a place where I have no idea who you actually are, and that's what you want to achieve. Right. So in fact, I think it's much more privacy preserving than anything we use in our daily lives, like a Google login or a Facebook login or something. So it's just really, really important to understand the implications of zero knowledge proofs and that implication and why it's why it's so powerful. Right. That that is that is, I think. That is the important takeaway, and we will just explain it over and over. We will open source everything so people can actually, they do not have to trust us. They can just look what's actually going on. Uh, and then I think it will, be, it will be clear and it will be fine. Uh, because, of course, if other people have better ideas how to solve that problem on scale, uh, we will be the first ones to go to, down, that, down that path. Uh, but at this point, we don't see anything. So the person who kind of, or the, the organization that kind of decides whether a hash is unique enough, uh, enough. basically th that's kind of um, uh, what in a legacy world would be the attestation server, right? So basically the, the place where you check um, that something is, so how does that work if it's just a list of hashes on, on a layer two? Well, so the attestation uh, happens in the public, right? So basically uh, the, the orb, so, so so the orb um, re records an image. The orb uh, calculates an embedding, hashes that embedding, uh, signs a message with both that embedding and kind of the the public uh, the public identity private key, and sends it to the attestation L two, and the comparison happens there. And basically, what happens there is a distance metric, right? So you have a you have um, you you basically have a code of numbers, a set of numbers. They get compared to each other. If that distance is is close enough, you say, okay, that person has already verified, has signed up before. And if that's the case, it gets inserted in a in a Merkle tree, right? And that that's that's the set of unique people. Okay, but only orbs can um, append uh, to that um, list of attestations. I mean, in the beginning, it. It would be cool if we as a community figure out ways how uh, other people can can build their own hardware uh, when we actually open source all of the designs and, and, and things like that. It's just a hard hard thing to solve, of course, but I'm pretty sure we will get there. So by, by open sourcing the software, will, will that provide... Because I, I think one of the things that people have been concerned about through you know, reading like on Twitter, etc., is that the the hardware is actually doing things that it's not supposed to. So like that the hardware is acting maliciously that perhaps like that world coin has a potential to be sort of commandeered by like a government actor or something like that to actually scan irises. These are sort of like conspiracy theory style scenarios, but like scenarios that people are concerned about by open sourcing the hardware. I see that like, I can see that, you know, that would allow people to peer into what the code has been instructed to do. But without access to the actual hardware that that people are using sort of in the street, there's no way to actually verify what the hardware is doing. I guess like I'm curious what I'm curious if, if you have a nightmare scenario, you know, like what is your nightmare scenario and what are you doing to mitigate it? Okay, so so first to react to your your, your comment, I, I do not worry that people will take that orb apart relatively fast. Um, so. We will open source everything. We we will we will build in the open with the community. So we will have absolutely no incentive to do something like that. Um, I think actually the the real concern I have is that I don't know, like malicious people try to build their own orbs and make them look like orbs, 
right? And, and try to, I don't know, fool fool users into believing, okay, you're actually signing up for Bitcoin right now, but you're signing up for something else. I think that is the that is the absolute worst case that could happen here. Um, well, it will just not work with the with the Rollcon app or all the other apps that actually support Rollcon onboarding. So uh, you will have to build your own app and whatever. And that's that's a fraud case, of course. Uh, and what will need to happen here is just being very, very transparent and very educational around all of those things, right? I think that's that's a problem that everyone sees and expects. Yeah, that, that that's by far the, the, the worst case we think about. What do you think about? Yeah, that, that I think that's what I also had in mind. Like, you know, it's a fraud case, like you said. I mean, there's no stopping anyone from doing that. You know, just like there's no no one can stop someone from like selling you some bullshit cryptocurrency and masquerade, you know, pass it off as something else. Or so, so I think there's some amount of irrational fear around this, and but there's also a good amount of rational fear around unknown unknowns, and. And I guess I think that's the thing that most people are concerned with when it comes to privacy, when it comes to their data, when it comes to things like DNA sequencing or any sort of um, any sort of biometric data. You know, like I, I got a DNA kit for for Christmas, and um, and you know, I like I thought long and hard about whether or not I wanted to do it, and I, and, and I ended up like sending it back because I didn't like. Because there's too many unknown unknowns. Like I, I know a lot of the known risks, but there's just some unknown ones that I, I, I can't um, square with. And I think that this this uh, way of of uh, mitigating civil, res- civil resistance hints at a little bit of that as well. I mean, yeah, obviously, I totally, I totally understand that part. Uh, right? I, like I have the same emotion towards many things I use in my daily life. Um, and I don't know, like it actually starts with with using Google and and what's not right there. There's I, I know that somehow it's probably not a great idea, um, but it just makes my life easier. But I, I think what will happen here, since we we will open source everything we will build with the community, is I don't know. We we can we can figure out the unknown unknowns. Like we are not a we are not a closed source company that that do things behind doors or something, um, at least w- once we put everything out, which, by the way, is just really, really hard to do with hardware. It's, we, we hear that criticism of, like, why, why didn't you do it so far? Well, because the, 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 at, at some point the, the cost of a tax was higher than the rewards. But we will do it relatively soon in the next weeks. So, yeah, I totally, I totally get that point. Uh, but I think it, in my consideration and our thinking, and we thought about this problem for quite a while, uh, it is... Privacy preserving, it truly is like just by design, by the by the use of, of the zero knowledge proofs that we, we we're doing here, right? And um, neither us or anyone else will be able to do by design of the system uh, kind of really really scary things. And that's the most important thing to get right. And then there's of course many things we have to figure out together with the community. Um, many things I probably don't think about at this point. I think you're right about that part, of course. But I, I cannot give you like a great answer here because. I think you're right, uh, and I think we have to figure out those things together. I think civil resistance is one of the biggest problems of that space is unsolved. Uh, everyone knows that, and that is a way forward, All right? And let, let's try to get it to work. Yeah, so maybe let's um, put the biometric thing behind us. I'm also queasy about this, but um, let's let's talk about the protocol. So basically, um, 
what technologies it based on and i mean if you plan to onboard the first billion users with this how is it going to scale right so the the token itself is um the, the token is minted as an l2 on top of ethereum an optimistic rollup we're using at this point at least hubble from the ethereum foundation and we put a lot of resources to make it even more gas efficient so we we, we make our high our own sequence implementation and things like that and the reason here is just make it very gas efficient but we will allow and we are working on this right now um users to mint the token on other ecosystems too like solana for example right um just because we want to be ecosystem chain agnostic the whole protocol should should be like that so the the proof of personal itself of course should be able to be used by people no matter which, which ecosystem if it's near solana ethereum whatever uh it's just a very powerful primitive that should be open so um, basically, I have an attestation on each um, chain I choose to interact on, um, and then how does it how does it connect me to my account? So, so first of all, we are using um, for this for this whole zero knowledge proof part, we're using what is called Semaphore, uh, also from, from from Barry Whitehead from the Ethereum Foundation, right? So that is w with that you can you can prove. Uh, uniqueness or kind of inclusiveness in a set or not uh, without revealing your, your actual private key. That, that is what you want to do here. And yeah, so that, that semaphore from the Ethereum Foundation we're using right now and we will re-implement that, uh, for example, on Solana because basically what is happening is there, there's a Merkle tree uh, and you use your knowledge proofs to kind of create that nullifier um, on, on your phone. So... That will be the hard part, um, re-implementing those things on, on other ecosystems too, but right now it's on Ethereum. Um, so there's two sets of uh, public-private keys, right? So basically, what happens if I use if, if I lose my... I mean, I'm not going to lose my iris, but uh, hopefully. Uh, but uh, uh, what happens if I lose my phone? Well, that's... Uh, I mean, so, so your normal e Ethereum public-private key is just... The, the app will have an iCloud backup, right? That for that part, uh, maybe we will implement other things like social recovery. I think you're aware that's just a problem the whole e e ecosystem has. Uh, that's the hard part for the if you lose your your kind of semi. It's actually the semaphore key. It's not not like a normal um, public private key. But if you lose that part, theoretically you could show up uh, in front of an orb. You need another information too for that, uh, like the phone number or something like that. But we do not have that implemented. So right now, the simplest answer is you, you lose your, your identity at this point. And there's things we have to implement in the future for that. I had a question here. Just it, it, Would it be possible? Because I mean, like the I think what's important to realize here is that the onboarding and the, um, the issuance of this semaphore kind of coupon um, is separate from the actual wallet and uh then like holding and movement of funds would it be possible for any ethereum wallet to like if i want to use i don't know like my ledger or if i want to use zengo or anything that's like wallet connect compatible could i not just use any uh other wallet sure yeah like it, it will even be like even the onboarding to rollcoin will be will be possible through other wallets right so um we have an app of course like we're building our app ourselves uh, because it's just like in the first realization is onboarding people in i don't know 
all over the world at the same time is really, really hard. Like trying to people onboard in, in, in Kenya with, with MetaMask doesn't go that well. Um, let me tell you that. So that, that's why we're just building also an app that makes all of that much, much easier. But everything is open and other, other apps can integrate even that onboarding. Um, so let's talk about um, onboarding and incentives. So basically you actually give people tokens for signing up, correct? That is correct. Um, so what? How how many tokens do people get? How much is that worth? And um, is that a one-time thing? So um, th there's actually something something new coming up here. Um, but basically, what happens is, user user, when you sign up for for Rollcoin, you receive Rollcoin tokens. So you get ownership in, in the network in the protocol. Um, that that also will have governance rights, all of those things, right? And We are experimenting with different incentive mechanisms right now, like how much how much Rollcoin do you actually uh, will you give out at different times of the system, all of those different things. But in short, uh, there will be 10 billion tokens in total. It will be a capped supply system. Eight billion of those will go to users. And you will have to implement something like early users get more because the kind of if it actually gets adopted, the protocol gets adopted more and people are using it, the, the price will increase. Right to some degree, so early users will receive more tokens to still make it worthwhile for them. But I think what actually will be really exciting to see, and what I guess we will see relatively soon, is that other projects will also do airdrops uh, through the Rollcoin network. Right? It's basically like this this billion user table that Balaji is always talking about, um, or, or at least mention it often and, and send this blog post around. Right? It's, it's like it will be an open database of unique humans. Uh, that you can just, I don't know, distribute ownership in different things towards too. So my guess is relatively soon, users will not only receive Rollcoin, but other tokens too. So the public narrative um, around Webcoin kind of is centered around this UBI notion. Um, and basically to me, something that is um, given out once is uh, is kind of, it's an airdrop, it's not a UBI, right? So basically a UBI would be something, an income that you actually um, get on a regular basis. Sorry, I, I probably thought a little bit too complicated here. Um, so yes, user, user, you will receive your Rollcoin as a gradual unlock, right? That, that, has many, that has many different reasons. So I don't know, let's say you receive 100 Rollcoin, you will receive those 100 Rollcoin over two years uh, and like a, a small piece of it every week. Yeah, I mean like, Why we are so excited, I mean, we like both Sam and I, we are just personally really excited about UBI or, or at least something like that uh, will be the question how it actually is built in detail in the future. But when AI and, and, and kind of AGI comes closer, we will need something like that. But I don't know, there's just how much, how much money do you need to give away? So Rollcon will do a, a part for that, but we, we cannot solve the problem our own. Like other people will need to jump in and use that, that proof of personal layer to do their part as well. Like not, not one single entity can provide UBI to the whole world, of course. So with, with, with a fixed supply, like how, how, long, how long until this uh, initial supply of WorldCoin is exhausted? So like we, we, we shouldn't expect that like in two generations from now, people are still onboarding with the orb in the hopes of getting WorldCoin. They might onboard with an orb device or something similar in order to prove their identity and have access to, you know, all, all of the sort of additional services and things that uh, people get by proving their identity, but they're not going to be issued the, the world coin. Right. Right. It, it depends really on how the, um, how, how the price develops over time and, and things like that. But it, it really is designed with the thought that everyone should be able to claim 
a share of it, right? So uh, the later you come, you will, you will get less, but it, it should bring us to three, three to five billion people at least. Uh, and if everything goes right, more, more than that. Yeah. But, but I mean, like, l- 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 let's, let's imagine like a, you know, uh, best case scenario, you know, seven people on board, seven million, uh, seven billion people on board in the next uh, five years. And then like, there's just like, there's always new people. Like there's, there's always people being born every day. Uh, so if we have like all the world's population and plus, uh, you know, like mothers are putting the orb in front of their newborn babies in order to get, you know, their world coin tokens, at, at which point does the supply get exhausted? Well, we will see what the community comes up with, uh, right? Like there, there is a total, total reasonable case to like I don't know, like drop drop a new a new coin, whatever. Maybe the community wants to expand the supply. All of those things. Like right now, that's the problem we solve. If we if we get to that um, to that limit, that's already a big 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 deal, of course. And then it should be chameleon. Okay, so governance could at some point uh, increase the supply. I think so, yeah. Okay. Like all of that, all of that stuff is not figured out. We also will figure it out together with the community, but um, that would be co- that would be cool to do. So, in addition to people getting wild coins for signing up, and um, people who sign them up, so the op- operators also get tokens, right? That's correct. But they have to buy their op upfront. So, so basically, they're kind of renting it from the protocol uh, that, that that will be the final state right so you 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 will probably have to stake some amount of raw coin you will receive an orb and you you can use it and then uh, you will earn a sign up reward in raw coin for every for every person you onboard or uh yeah or, or re-identify there's a lot of things going on here actually um we, we will also publish a quite long blog post later on because there's fundamentally kind of this whole incentive mechanism is kind of the the crux of the problem that's that's the core of the problem like if you if you really come to a place where the incentives of everyone is aligned like of course like the the big ones like the 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 team the community uh, investors operators users like if all incentives are well aligned so for example operators have an incentive to um, onboard only users that are actually kind of really understanding what is going on and really are using uh, whatever they're getting they should earn more rewards, uh, for example, things like that. So you, you want to have all of those mechanisms built in. That's why it's quite a quite a complicated thing. In short, they receive an orb, they rent it from the protocol, and they earn some rewards depending on uh, how good they're doing. And again, the community the governance will, will change the parameters depending on different countries and what's or not. But that's the short answer. So you guys have been have been publicly accused of running um, a multi level marketing scheme with um, the oops <laughs> what what's your reply to that i don't know like people pe- people will say many things at, at some point it's it, it is just not the case right and um it was really funny that like on, on twitter there was this this early uh team video from like the growth team or something where they explained real and whatsoever and, and people made jokes about that but back then we literally have been like five people a team of five people or like eight people um, sitting in a small apartment in, in San Francisco and, and figured things out. Right. So like we were a startup, we were testing many things. Many things will not work, others will, and we, we will we will move ahead. Right. So um but but of course, like to be very, very clear, we will produce fifty thousand of those devices a year. Right. So and that starts relatively soon. So that means 
uh, every month we will onboard thousands of new people with those orbs. Um, and already now we have onboarded 450,000 users to Rollcoin, and that's only the case with 30 devices. So one device is onboarding an average of 800 people a week. Uh, the best ones are doing more than 2,000, so the numbers are much, much crazier than we thought in the beginning. Um, but on the other hand, the implication of that is that just operational load of handling that is insane, right? Like figuring out the governance, making sure the operators are doing the right things, are not ex- explaining like shady things, all of those all of those problems that you get on scale, um, right? That, that even things like Uber and whatever had in the early days, we have to figure that out, but we have to figure that out in a decentralized way in the open, which is even harder, I guess, for that case. So yeah, it's it will be a big challenge. And I think um, people will make fun of many things and that's fine uh, as long as we, we move forward and we actually get it get it going. So I'm curious, who are these 450,000 people? Where are they mostly concentrated? And like, yeah, what's what's the kind of demographics of the people that you're onboarding right now i know you had uh i know you had some onboarding some people in france like i live in france i know you had some some people with an orb here yeah oh that's cool okay so like first of all what was the objective right like the over the last few few months the objective really was just talking to users in as many locations as as we possibly can and kind of figure out what do they understand what do they not understand um what works in terms of operators incentive mechanisms all of those things so we really like we were like full-on in testing mode and so that means we 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 took a small number of devices only 30 of them uh, because the media attention is just really high it's like a shiny thing that shows up in, in front of i don't know like in a big big city um that that attracts a lot of attention so small number of devices and then we try to spread them as as, as much as we can all over the world so everything from norway People have operated them in Troms or Norway, like in like I don't know min- minus ten degrees Celsius, and then the orb broke down to um, everything like to, to Cape Town, um, Chile. So really, all over the world. Um, I, I could show you. I guess we do not have video sharing here, but I, I could show you a map. It's it's really all over the place. Everything from Europe to Africa, Indonesia, India, uh, Chile, uh, and quite quite evenly spread. But the the thing you you learn relatively fast. Um, which was surprising to me, is that the biggest, the biggest thing to figure out will be to find the right operators, and you really want to find kind of young entrepreneurial people that otherwise would run companies. So kind of this this YC application process. That's really how we think about it because you have a strong Pareto distribution going on here, and the most productive ones onboard like many many more people because, for example, in Kenya, one operator uh, led the the local crypto club and then started people onboarding in universities where like the, the 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 crypto user density is really really high so in in short smart operators will figure out things that no centralized entity could ever do and that that is that is why we're doing that right like find smart smart young talented people all over the world they will find how to explain people web3 and onboard them into it is that a tangible upside um, for the people receiving Worldcoin today? I mean, is it tradable? No, it's not. It's um, so, so right now in the in the testing phase, users receive uh, IOUs and Worldcoin that will go online when the mainnet goes live. Um, so so that that is what. I imagine that's difficult to explain to people. I mean, so basically, um, for Web three users, I mean, this is this is something that we're used to. But if you go um, to Nairobi and say, uh, please look, please look into this. Oh, no, you don't need to smile. Um, sort of thing. That's, um, I mean, what, what do you tell these people why they should do this? 
Yeah, of course. You're 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 saying it exactly right. It's it is different, and that's why it's or it's it's difficult, and that's why it's actually so cool that it, that it already works. Like all of that, the whole last year, uh, and again, we will publish much more about this. But the whole last year was super surprising to us. Um, just like the scale, how it works, and w- what those stories, those operators tell, is very very different, right? So, for example, I don't know when you when you interview users in Kenya and in those universities, it's about um, Web3, uh, kind of Rokan will hopefully soon be the, the widest distributed and, and fairest network and you get ownership in it before it actually goes live and just, I don't know, like young young people find that cool and exciting and then you also receive your proof of person that later on if people actually start building things with it, you can use for that. So it, you're right, it's like uh, those operators, they uh, do a long pitch uh, and in, in many places because it's hard to explain. But what will happen relatively soon is that Rollcon will become a platform um, for other projects and protocols to also distribute their ownership because that's that was actually quite recent change. We're really really excited about is kind of we want to bring the community with us and not 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 only our tokens. Other people should be able to do that too, and I think we will see that relatively soon. How do you police operators? So basically, I mean, if if the operators have a much clearer picture of what the possible upsides of the token are. How do you prevent them from saying, look, I don't really want to explain this, but I'll give you $2 if you look into this op? For, first of all, right now, operators receive, they not re, they're not receiving real coin IUs. They're receiving um, stable coins uh, paid by us, right? That, that is the case right now. When, when, when the minute goes live, they will be paid by the protocol. How much do they get per person? I do not have the exact numbers in, in, in mind because it's different for different locations. Later on, there will be, again, like a community-governed auction mechanism basically going on to find the right price, given on how the market goes. Uh, and, and right now, we just try to estimate, okay, what is the opportunity cost for someone to, I don't know, work an hour in Norway and work an hour in in uh, in, in Cape Town, and you you try to cover that. And you you understand, okay, how many signups do those people make? Uh, and that is everything from $1 to like up to five dollars per sign up depending on where you are i think that that's roughly the range but i I can check it up and let you know later and to your question actually you 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 asked one of the most important questions um which is like how do you align the operators incentives with the ones of the of the protocol right so in the extreme case you could imagine an operator going or showing up in i don't know let's take as an example like an elderly home like people that have absolutely no idea what crypto is and the operator goes in there and signs up all of the people because that's just the easiest way to earn a reward, right? Um, so what do, what do you have to do? And that's a hard thing to do. So you, you basically have to uh, measure kind of a quality metric in, in, in some way, right? So, and, and these are many things, right? Like users afterwards answering kind of governance questions, like how much do they actually understand what is going on? That's the easiest thing you can do. Then afterwards, okay, do they actually transact with the protocol and things like that? Because all of that also has to work decentralized, which makes it even harder. And then what you want to do is you want to have a feedback mechanism to the operator. So operator earns more if uh, the user actually is an active user and, I don't know, answers the governance questions in the right way. And that should be much more because then those operators, they go to to crypto uh, conferences and not to, uh, I don't know, like whatever an elderly home in the extreme case so so that is a really hard thing to figure out and uh to be clear like one of the hardest things and really did not work in the beginning so we we saw all of those all of those cases happening uh we we saw it happening for example in in one occasion that like an operator onboarded people without phones 
um, because we did not have like this feed feedback mechanism implemented. And that that's of, of course not great, but that's because why we're doing testing. I'd like to talk about the Worldcoin, like the company and sort of the organizational structure. So I, I think Worldcoin is a U.S. based company in San Francisco. But can you talk a little bit about the corporate structure? Will there be a foundation? What does that look like? Yeah, so I, I will tell you where we are right now. Um, but but there are still many things to figure out. Um, like, and I actually would love to brainstorm with you if you have great ideas. But so right now uh, there is there is a a U.S. entity, like a, a normal company. Um, we have we have people based in the United States. Okay, actually, so there's a U.S. entity, there's a German entity, and then there's a Swiss foundation. So these are the things that currently exist. And why why that is the case is we have um, we have a team in in the United States, but that's that's actually very small at this point. Uh, most of the people are uh, in Europe and. There's this very funny backstory. It's like we we actually ended up in a small town in the middle of Germany, <laughs> because in uh, during COVID we we were building hardware devices. Like we had to go to an office, and we really started uh, Rollcoin in January before COVID started. So like in March COVID hit, in January we started working on it, and it was really hard in San Francisco to go to an office or to a lab even to build things. The, the regulations were just super strict, and some of us, including me, had German passports. So just we flew everyone from San Francisco to to the small town called uh, Tenenlohe next to also a small town, Erlangen, and <laughs> rented a big place there, uh, rented like houses around it, um, and and just like flew everyone in there. And we just had, had crunch time for like many weeks. Uh, so anyways, that's why we're still here. We have like a lot of hardware equipment. Um, and it kind of became a meme in the company. Right. So many people in Germany, some of them in San Francisco, and there's, there's a Swiss foundation now. Yeah, so the Swiss Foundation should do the token issuance later on. Um, the the thing I'm trying to understand right now, and maybe you have like good input here, like good ideas, is um, how to actually kind of set up the DAO structure in the right way, right? Like, so right, right now there's a company it's called Tools for Humanity, but obviously like this meme I, I saw many times on Twitter directed towards me, like if your currency has a CEO, it's not a like it's not a cryptocurrency and all of those things, right? Like we understand that that's not the not the goal, so. We want to figure out a way like how we can give as much governance as we can to the community and, and kind of put a legal legal structure behind that. But that's that's still in the works. Cool. And um Alex, you're VC backed. So um last year you actually um raised twenty five million at a valuation of uh one billion from uh the uh from the crypto all-star, so A16Z, Coinbase Ventures, CoinFund, SBF, and so on. Let's talk about the business model of WorldCoin. So in, in, in a way, um, you've reserved 20% of the WorldCoin tokens um, for um, investors and developers, so basically insiders, right? Yeah. I mean, no, no, no. Um, so... so how it's actually structured is 10% to the foundation and 10% to to investors broadly specified. So right now these are just internal investors, like, as you said, like VCs. Um, but again, we we're trying to find a way how to broaden that investor base soon, but um, more about it later. So yeah, that that's the case. Okay. And um, so how does this um, square with um, the mission of a fair launch? So basically, if you say basically everyone... Um, basically, this this um, cryptocurrency, um, the value proposition is basically that it's as widely 
distributed as possible. And then basically 20% is retained by a very small, I mean, you know, compared to, you know, the entire world population by a very small set of individuals. Um, how, how does this square up? So first of all, I, I think as you, as you probably know, compared to other projects, it's actually a very, very small fraction, right? So it's, um, it, it's basically as far as we, we thought we can go in terms of just giving it to users in the community but while still funding the project, right? They just have a simple economic question. VC, like in, in a regulatory world we live today, um, the best way to get capital to build something like that are VCs. And uh, I know it's like an anti-meme in the crypto space. Actually, like Chris Dixon and, and people like that we are working with are some of the smartest people I know. So I'm actually really, really happy to have them. So... Yeah, and then you just make a calculation. And I'm really flattered that at this point in time, like everyone says, like it's crazy, like whatever, twenty percent. But when we have been ten people in, in in the middle of the bear market in San Francisco, uh, it it sounded like an insane endeavor, and everyone gave us the feedback back then, like you will not make that work. You will have to uh, kind of give, uh, kind of do more pre mine, otherwise you will not be able to fund it. And we really sticked with it and. Trust me, it was a really, really tough thing to do, and it will be an even tougher thing to do in the future because uh, building hardware and, and being on the, on the global scale, it just requires capital. And um, it's a hard discussion. We have it over and over. So, like, of course, Twitter and the community thinks, like, it's, it's, it's a lot. Investors think, so like, it should be more. Uh, so that's, that, that's the trade-off you're navigating. And, yeah, if people have better ideas what we can do, uh, I would love to hear them. Uh, but just giving the situation you launch a company today you cannot do ICOs as you could in, in the early days you have to get funding for that it's like what what other options do you have that's that's the question and because fundamentally what you where you want to end up right like all incentives should be and will be aligned around the token not around the company that's the other important boundary condition right like we do not want to sell IP of an orb or like i don't know see people building i don't know using those or for, or like selling that the iris gang technology or like whatever that all of that stuff is off the table right all of that ip goes in the foundation so all incentives are aligned around the token and that's why you have to have that that allocation reserved does it make sense yeah i think it makes sense i i think um there's examples and i think the hard, the fact that you're doing hardware makes it particularly unique because there's there's an added cost there that you know if you don't have if you're just a software project um but like if you look in the cosmos community for instance I, i'm citing this example because i'm like close to that community you know projects are raising funds from foundations um from um, you know, sort of like uh, grants programs and, and things like that, and they're they're able to launch their projects um, and launch the token without uh, you know like massive uh, like sort of VC backing. Like in your case, it's it, it's obviously difficult, different because of the because of the hardware. Um, but yeah, may, maybe there's like uh, maybe there's an opportunity here for someone to figure out a better model, uh, especially for something that is so seems like it should be a sort of public good like not only the civil resistant identity but also like the open source hardware it it really feels like like it it, it exists in public good territory and so there and then in that case you know like what are the types of organizations that have money that are less 
incentivized by just purely returns, but more incentivized by like the vision, and, like supporting the vision and the mission, whether that's, you know, um, like foundations in the crypto space or uh, foundations or like nonprofits that, uh, you know, help people be financially sovereign or like, I don't know, like um, this, this sort of thing. So maybe, maybe there's a, an interesting model here. I, I totally agree with all of what you're saying and it, will become a public good like that's the, that's the whole goal of what we're doing right um and i don't know like oh, oh, it would be amazing if people figure out other other methods but to to be honest um i don't know it, it, it's kind of like an anti-meme in the crypto space i think we see at this point but again um all of our investors are like i don't know we selected them a lot like we, many many people who did let it around and, and things like that and the investors we have are very aligned with everything we're doing and the only way they make money is that the, the protocol actually works and the token increases in value there is no there's no backdoor or something so there are actually value land and if you ever talk to chris dixon you will understand why it's great to have someone like that with you um and, and the same is true for many other investors we have right so i think um i i think it's actually wonderful that that exists like that you have like super super brilliant and smart people that thought about this space for many years and um they will go on board and help you and, and you, you get funding from them so i i i get it's an anti-meme and i get where it's coming from but um i love our investors <laughs> um yeah so basically i totally understand the need for funding if you if you look at coins that are meme coins, so basically coins that have no obvious utility, so say Bitcoin, I would ask. I mean, Wildcoin is also a meme coin. So basically, what's what's the meme uh, for for Wildcoin? <laughs> so so, so j j j just a comment to that, right? Like, I mean, one way and certainly not a perfect way to measure it is the Gini coefficient, as as you probably know. And there's like all kinds of literature why it's maybe not the perfect metrics, but it's at least it's some, and uh, like Bitcoin and and and, and other projects are at zero point nine. Rollcoin will be at zero point four. Um, something like that. So it's it's much much better. I don't know. Like everyone gets ownership in in this new thing. Everyone just simply for being a human. Just, no matter where you are, you get ownership in something new that we all can create together. And it's like a new playing field. And that that's really really exciting. I think to many people. But you're creating value first and foremost. So I mean, yes, I mean you're you're positioning it as a as a public good. Um, but you're creating value first and foremost for the people who've invested, right? I mean, so basically the VCs they're in this um, for the money. They're not in it to make the world a better place, right? So um, if you if you give like um, the equivalent of what you'd give a billion and a half people to um, 500 people who funded you in 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 the beginning doesn't that um do you think that doesn't make it in extremely unlikely that the remaining people will kind of coordinate around that system rather than a system that doesn't have that right so basically if if you have the entire distribution of worldcoin and 20 and 20 percent um goes to the people who kind of started it um, or financed it in the beginning. Um, don't you think this will be forked? And I mean, it's, see, I see where, where I, where I'm coming from is that I don't see how this is, how this is not going to irk people the wrong way. I, I think that's fair. But again, if people have ideas, other ideas, what we can do here, 
I will be the first one to talk about that. Like maybe there's even a way how we can issue like, um, I don't know, like another another token with like different different rights or whatever. Like there, there's all kinds of things we can think about. We, we, we had this discussion with Balaji actually recently. So I, I, I totally get it. I think given the boundary constraints we had and we thought about this for like a lot of time and we just, you actually need money to make that work. I think it's the, yeah, it's the, it's the best end state um, that was achievable. Yeah, I'd like to talk about the the, the, the regulatory side a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're you're aware of, of of what happened in the fallout of Libra and that that project. Uh, I think stirred uh, a lot of shit, <laughs> to put things lightly, um, in, in terms of like regulatory awareness uh, around crypto and around these you know like kind of global currencies that might compete with national currencies. Um, what's the, um, what, what do you feel is the state of things, uh, in the jurisdictions that you have started sort of like launching the project? And are you, are you concerned about, say, regulators in Europe, for instance, you know, like, uh, prohibiting these sorts of currencies from even existing, uh, as the, uh, Mika regulation? hints at and is accelerating perhaps because of the ukraine conflict yeah i mean of, of course we are concerned um so level level one concern was certainly um and is the united states right there was just a lot, lot of it, it's not even it's it, you're basically just flying blind uh as, as i think you, you probably heard from many people there's just a lot of regulatory uncertainty and that's why we will not launch in the United States. Um, at, at least the token you will you will be able to receive your your proof of personhood, uh, kind of your identity piece, but you will not receive the token. And also, the team is is located um, outside of the United States to a large degree. We, we we just we just don't know what what will happen there, and, and like many people also don't know that. I guess that's that's no surprise. So that is level one concern. Um, the European Union, as you just mentioned, like there there's recent developments that are also. Concerning, I think, uh, particularly uh, the, the, the craziest thing that happened recently is, is kind of thinking about banning the, the uh, proof of proof of rock chains, which was just scary to see. I was in the room with the people writing the paper refuting that thesis, so uh, or from that regulation. So yeah, uh, yeah, I'm I'm very much uh, close to the to the people that are doing the the hard work trying to not make make you know, this regulation not go through. Yeah. Okay, so, so you know much more more than me about this, but um, yeah, I mean, we we think a lot about regulation. We have um, we have extremely talented people in our legal team thinking about that problem a lot. Um, but yeah, so so number one is we will launch not in the United States for exactly that reason. Uh, we will monitor the European Union, uh, but but otherwise we will just comply wherever we go. We are also obviously like in a in a simpler situation than Libra. Yeah. Yeah, it's unclear. I think at this point, and I think like the um, the the conflict in Ukraine will certainly uh, accelerate things on the regulatory front. I mean, uh, I think just just uh, today, like uh, Christine Lagarde makes made some comments about how uh, we like really now need to regulate, and like Mika needs to be fast tracked, and um, that will likely not be great for the industry. I presume. Um, so, like, what's your what's your goal here, like? You know, if if Worldcoin succeeds, and you know, we fast forward twenty years from now, how will it have made the world a better place? It it will be a major public good that that the whole ecosystem is using to to solve civil resistance. It will have 
it will have been the, the biggest onboarding into Web3 that the world has seen so far. I think that that's by far the most exciting thing for, for all of us, that it will give people access to a system that otherwise um, would just take much, much longer. I, I, don't, I don't think it would not happen, but we're just in a position to actually accelerate it, and we see that working. We actually see a path to go to a billion users in less than three years from now. Um, and that was very, very surprising to us and, and, and crazy to us. Yeah, it will be it will be something where where people can can try new things. Maybe UBI will come. I, I think like in, in in twenty years, the most exciting thing actually would be that that UBI is deployed at least to some subgroup of people or something with that, and everyone has access to a, a privacy preserving, scalable proof of personhood. There's like many many answers in there, but I think you get the point. So Alex, um, if you zoom out a bit, um, there's actually a couple of projects that um are in in a similar, um position in the Web3 ecosystem, right? So I'm thinking of things like um, the Good Dollar, Proof of Humanities, or Circles UBI. Um, how how do you see Wildcoin with respect to these? Well, first of all, I'm excited um, to, to see other people solving, solving, I guess, one of the hardest, hardest problems that there is in that space, right? So um, I, I think it will be like ho hopefully just like a great coexistence where we're, we will figure out different things at different times and can just adapt and learn really, really fast. Um, it's a way too big problem to be solved by one, one project alone. Well, I think it will be very surprising to, um, to people to see how fast it scales uh, because there, there is actually a, like, I, I think it will be at least double digit millions by end of the year. Um, so it, it will, it will scale much, much faster than people expect at this point. That that's that's everything we, we measure internally and we are really surprised by. So Um so Alex, um I mean the, the the true test of time will be how many of these people will actually use their identity for anything, right? So basically because just because someone signs you up um doesn't mean you're an active participant in the network and you're actually using this for anything at all, right? So basically when do you expect the network um, to be live or when do you expect the when do you expect people um, to be able to interact with um, their with their identity well I mean we will we will open up the SDK and all of those things relatively soon um, so less less than three months uh, that part that parts will be open sourced and people can start building with it and then I'm excited to see what what the community actually comes up with um, there are many interesting things going on here um, that will make it very different than what people are used to. So just just to give you one example, like one example is that those orbs lead to a very different network uh, distribution than normally because you basically have operators, you have talent operators that that show up in front, uh, like in in a certain city or geography, and then they they get to high penetration really really fast. So the density will be much much higher um, com compared to other crypto networks, and that's what we already observe, right? So you basically versus like a normal crypto network, um, at least like broadly speaking, ends up being widely distributed, like equally all over the world with people that are interested in it. What the Rollcoin network will look like is you, you have clusters of like high penetration, um, double digit percentage penetration, in like different locations. And then it starts, it starts growing. Um, that will have many interesting implications. It will hard, hard to tell what, what that actually will do and what will people build with that. Um, but that was one thing that was very surprising to us. So in short, we are we are like this this identity part is a platform, and uh, like we need a community to build things with that, of course. So we, we will open source it. We will we will grow it, and I think if it gets to a certain scale, uh, many people will build with it because it's just 
uh, you will have access to many, many users and a lot of attention. So will you or your VCs um, actively incentivize the adoption um, through other projects? So basically, I mean, will you give out um, investments or grants to projects to actually use your SDK? Yeah, I think so. However, uh, I want to figure out a way how that it's also community governed, right? So that there's some 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 um, some community fund or community grants, and uh, like it's it's getting relatively fast. The community actually decides what what to invest and what not. But but yeah, of course, it will happen. Where, where does the community currently convene? So basically, if if um, our listeners want to get um, an idea of um, what the thoughts in the community are, are there Telegram groups or Discord or wh where do they go to check this out? We, we are launching. So, so right now, there is not much going on here. We just we we actually had to step from 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 zero to one with all of the hardware and things like that. So relatively soon, we we open source the first parts of the system, launch launch the Discord, the Telegram, all of those things, and and really involve the community in, in the most important decisions we're doing. And how can people um, stay up to date on this? Is there a mailing list that they can subscribe subscribe to or follow you, follow you on Twitter? Or what's, what's the idea? Well, I think the best thing will be to join our Discord. And I, I think we will certainly also do a mailing list. All of, all of that stuff right now just doesn't exist. Um, we, we have worked like really, really hard over the last two months to just get get that hardware part off the ground. And now it's, now it's there. So... The, the project will change um, very, very significantly in, in the coming coming weeks, and I'm excited to, to tell you more and show you more. Cool. But it, it, really, it really goes to kind of from now, of course, we didn't talk much about it, and that, that will change, so we'll talk much more about it. It will be open source, and, and people can start building with us. I keep my eyes open uh, to see <laughs> where this is going. Very, very <laughs> Thank you for coming up. <laughs> Thank you for coming on, Alex. <laughs> It's been a Thanks pleasure. for having me. That was fun. Yeah, if, if if I could just like if I could just sum up here, like so, I I feel like my 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 squeamishness around look. I mean, bottom line is like civil resistance. If if you if you if you figure out identity, you unlock a ton of use cases. And I mean, we've discussed this on the podcast at length with tons of people, and and that's an important component to unlocking like the full potential of crypto and like a world internet and like breaking down borders and what, you know, whatever you want. Like that's a big problem that needs to be solved. We talked about some other projects like proof of humanity and all these other things that are trying to do this in different ways. This is, I, I guess this is the, um, you know, the hardware option is a super efficient option, but it does come, I think with some, with some drawbacks, which like we, which we discussed earlier. And I think I've come away from this still squeamish about um, getting my retina scanned to to onboard the system, but confident that you guys will make the right decisions in order to make this as secure a system as possible. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's I think that's that's the takeaway from this from this conversation. I don't know, Federica, what do you think? Yeah, so basically my takeaway, I think, is, yeah, I think biometrics is somewhere I wouldn't go. To me, that's too invasive. And I think I've just, I, I've come away with this with a renewed sense of that, you know, web of trust is the way to go. Because that's also, I mean, to me, that's the, o the only way that I can see that this can 
um, scale um, in a truly decentralized manner without being orchestrated. And I mean, you don't really want to have um, a conductor for this. Um, so yeah, to me, it's web of trust all the way. <laughs> well, that, 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 that would be cool. We just don't see it working yet. Uh, but of course, if that works, that would be awesome. And again, we're also working on this internally, but it's just, it doesn't work yet. And no one has seen it scale. All right. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast. Go to epicenter.tv slash subscribe for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for the newsletter so you get new episodes in your inbox as they're released. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps people find the show, and we're always happy to read them. So thanks so much, and we look forward to being back next week.